come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 179 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here for you is going to be my Traverse to the Threes, number two, as my two featured reviews here are going to be Murders in the Zoo. That's the one from 1933, so my older movie. And I have that paired up with Malum. This is from here in 2023. Now, this makes for kind of an interesting double feature here as these are two different types of movies, but I'm kind of pegging this as a double feature of having kind of cool sets and set pieces where we have the first one being in the jungle at first and then going into a zoo where everything is happening and then the new release being one that is featured in a decommissioned police station. And then to go along with that, I have mini reviews of Ennies Men, Black Sabbath, that's my Traverse of the Threes, the older movie from 1963, Seconds, Spider Baby, and At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul. should also say that the two there near the end of Seconds and Spider Baby are going to be a little bit shorter as I'm doing some prep ahead of you know knowing all the rules for the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs. And I've also got two very brief reviews of a couple Twilight Zone episodes that I've been watching. I was actually... You know, thinking about it while I was checking the show out that I should have been kind of including those, but things have been busy, not getting a lot of sleep, finally starting to settle into a routine. But before I get over to the rest of the episode, let me do my... Actually, just kidding. There's one last thing I wanted to say, and I actually just remembered it, and I wanted to do it before I got into the monthly review and everything like that. But I'm behind on podcasting due to with my daughter being born and then going into the holidays and everything like that, so I'm trying to catch up. I just wanted to give a shout-out to Mr. Parka, who does his weekly show, and he's got a little subset of shows that he's doing on top of that. He puts out such great work, and he watches so many movies and everything like that, but he had shouted me out on an episode back in October for his, so I wanted to reciprocate there that if you're not listening to him, you definitely should because... Part of my show is modeled after what he's doing over there, so just wanted to make sure that I did that. Now let me get you over to my monthly review. For my monthly review of March, I watched 38 total films. 28 of them were in horror. I watched 6 that were 2023 releases, and my percentage of horror would be 73.68%. Now the horror movies that I watched during the month are Tales from the Hood 3, Zombie 90, Extreme Pestilence, Werewolf by Night, The Serpent and the Rainbow, The Stone Rider, The Lair, House of Wax from 1953, Scream 6, Followed Home, Leprechaun 5 in the Hood, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, Friday the 13th Part 3, Hollywood Scarefest Premiere Edition, Children of the Corn Genesis, Faust, this would be the one from 1926, The Outwaters, Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Daywatch, Friday the 13th The Final Chapter, X-Ray, Seven, Species the Awakening, The Pale Blue Eye, Supernatural, The Haunting, this is the one from 1963, Summoning Sylvia, Skeleton of Mrs. Morales, and Ennies Men. This would then be eight countries represented, and they include United States, Germany, United Kingdom, Hungary, Canada, Russia, Israel, and Mexico. 
Now, for 2023 watches, that would be the Lair, Scream 6, the Outwaters, the Pale Blue Eye, Summoning Sylvia, and Annie's Men. Now, the oldest watch would be the Stone Rider from 1923. Now, the average year would be 1995. And then my highest rated was 7, which I gave it a 9.5. The lowest rated would be Zombie 90, Extreme Pestilence, which was a 3. And the average rating would be 7.1. So then how does this month kind of check out and or kind of, I guess, sync up with other months? Now, I watched 6 2023 releases, and this would make 34 total you know, films being released in that specific year. Now, this would be tied with my second highest, which 2020 I also had 6. And then in 2018 and then 2022, I had seven. And then in 2019, I had five. And then 2021, I only had three. Now, horror films that for the month would be 28, which is the highest total I've ever had for a March. As it looks like 2019 and 2020, I had 27. And then last year, I had 26. And then it looks like 23 in 2021 and then 22 in 2018. So that would be 153 horror movies watched in March. And then for total films, this is coming in tied as my second highest. The highest though was 2019 at 45, and then this year and last year I had 38. I had 35 in 2018, I had 33 in 2020, and then 31 in 2021. I've watched a total of 220 movies in the month of March. And then it looks like for average year, this one being 1995 would be kind of right there in the middle. It looks like the oldest year that I've done is 2020, I had 1994. And then in 2021, I had 1997. Last year was 1996. Now, the most recent year would be 2019, where I had 2002. 2018, I had 2000. And the average year overall is going to be a 1997. So this year that I'm doing has actually brought that average down a bit. So then for average ratings here, 7.1 is actually down kind of one of my lower years. As it looks like last year was a 7, so that would be obviously lower. The year before that, 2021, was a 7.2. The year before that, 2020, was a 7.3. 2019 was the highest at a 7.6. And then the first year that I've started doing this, 2018, I had a 7.5. Average rating, though, for across the board here would be a 7.3. So this year is helping bring that down, unfortunately. And then percentage of horror. For the month of March, I'm sitting on a 70.16% overall. This year is actually bringing that up as I had 73.68%. And then it looks like the next highest would have been 74.19%. The highest though was 2020, I had 81.82%. And then it looks like 2018, 62.86%. 2019, 60% on the dot. And then 68.42% in 2022. So this year, like I said, bringing that average up. So then to just kind of do a little bit of my yearly total so far, for new horror films, I've watched 20, and then for horror films in general, 84, total films on top of that, 125, average years, 1996, average rating, 7.1, percentage of horror, 67.2%. So it looks like I'm a little bit below my pace that I need to have to get to 100 releases for this year as I need to keep doing about 8.3 per month, so I'm slightly below that. I should be up closer to 25. And then I've watched 454 movies that were released in that specific year. And then for horror films, I should, I'm at 84 right now. And then my rate, my to stay on pace there for 365, I should have 30.4 per month. So as of right now, I'm a little bit below that pace because I should be closer, I should actually be closer to about 91, 92. So 84 is a little bit below that, but I've watched 1,895 horror films since I started counting. This year at 125, I needed to, if I'm gonna get up to the 500, I need to be at 41.7 per month. So for that one, I'm right about where I need to be. So I'm trying to keep pace on that. I think I'm a little bit below that when I was doing the actual number crunching, but I've watched 2,400 movies since I've been keeping track. Average year, right now is at 1996 which is bringing down my 1998 average overall 7.1 is bringing down the 7.4 average of everything overall and then this year right now is bringing down my percentage of horror as i'm at 67.2 percent as overall i've been at 77.32 percent so i don't think there's anything else they need to do here for this intro as well as for this monthly review so let me get you over to a very brief break before i get into those mini reviews and i hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me also thank you for listening journey with a cinephile 
And for my first mini review of this week is going to be Ennies Men. This is from 2022. This was written and directed by Mark Jenkin. It stars Mary Woodvine, Edward Rowe, and Flo Crow. This is a horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being set in 1973. On an uninhabited island off the Cornish coast, a wildlife volunteer's daily observations of a rare flower turn into a metaphysical journey that forces her, as well as the viewer, to question what is real and what is a nightmare. So this is a movie that I saw part of the trailer, and I knew that I was going to go to the Gateway Film Center to see it. My sister was in town, so she actually came with me. Now, another selling point was that Duncan from the podcast Under the Stairs liked it, so that was another thing in its favor. And despite what I shared, I didn't necessarily know what I was getting here coming in. So where I want to start is that I'm not entirely sure what I saw. My sister said the same thing as well. So I'm going to start with some positives of what we did know that we saw. So that would be the visuals. This movie looks to be made on film as there's this grainy look. This can be simulated, but it doesn't feel like a filter. If it is, kudos to them. The cinematography is amazing in setting up the isolation that this volunteer is going through and she is portrayed by Woodvine. What I found interesting is that this sets up that what she does is boring. She does the same things every day, almost like we do at our normal jobs. Not saying that she doesn't have a normal one, but like a nine to five almost. The problem here is that she is alone. Her only interactions being over the radio. She does have another type of radio before she can listen to music, but being alone with your thoughts this long can do some major damage. So I'll go into that next. Just seeing how bleak this place is and the isolation is good. I also thought how things are edited were solid that plays up the hallucinations and makes you question what is real and what is not. I'd also say that sound design here is amazing as this is just well made. So I'm going to go then is what I've been alluding to is what happens to this volunteer on the island. I take it that due to her isolation for how long she's been there, she's gone crazy. There is also the possibility that this lichen that is growing on the flowers could be causing her to hallucinate. There was an interesting angle here where I wondered if there was going to be time travel. We hear over the radio about Ennies men. This sounds like a group of miners being trapped and that might be the place or it might be like a monument. I'm not fully sure there, but that would explain why she sees a miner played by Joe Gray. There was another tragedy about a boat that crashed sharing the same name as the one that this boatman uses and he is portrayed by Edward Rowe. By the time, I don't think that this is the case. But I think that we, there are different elements here in her subconscious that are playing into her hallucinations. So there's some other elements here. I understood who the girl the volunteer sees is. Now she is portrayed by Flo Crow. There's also a preacher who is portrayed by John Woodvine, which I'm actually wondering, is this her father in real life? As well as a couple of different groups. One is made up of children and the other of women. Now I know that the latter one is from a canister as that brand is using a logo of these old-timey women. The other seems like a cult of children who follow a pagan religion a la something like Midsommar or the Wicker Man. These aren't fully explained, but it does make for an eerie atmosphere that we get. I should also say that the acting is good. Woodvine carries it mostly, but Roe, Crow, John Woodvine, Gray, and the rest are just solid as well. Now, I do need to shift over to a negative here. This movie is a bit boring. I know that part of that is by design. This sucks you in with the repetitive nature of her tasks. Things that we start to see get odd and then things get ramped up there until we have a full-blown nightmare. I enjoyed coming in on this ride, but I do think some will not agree there. This also makes the movie hard to talk about since this is more of an experience. So in conclusion, this is an odd film. I apologize for being repetitive, but this is one that you need to experience. We relaying what you see doesn't necessarily carry the same effect. We are seeing a fever dream play out and we don't necessarily know what is real or what is a nightmare. I did enjoy that, and it does well in building the atmosphere with the images and the sound design. The acting is solid for what was needed. If I have an issue here, just a bit slow. Now, because of that, I can't recommend this to everybody. I do think this is worth a watch if you want to see something a bit more avant-garde. So my rating here for Ennies Men is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. And for my second mini-review is actually going to be my Traverse to the Threes, the older movie that I was going to do, and that's Black Sabbath from 1963. This goes by the original title of... E Tret Volti della Pura. This is directed by Mario Bava, but it is based freely from three stories from Anton Chekhov, Aleski Tolsta, and Guy de Ma Maupassant. 
The screenplay, though, was written by Marcelo Fondato and then collaboration with Alberto Bellava Aqua and Mario Bava. This is starring Michele Messier, Olivia Alfonsi, and Boris Karloff. This is a horror film that is a co-production between Italy, France, and the United States. Currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being... Karloff hosts a trio of horror stories concerning a stalked call girl, a vampire-like monster who preys on his family, and a nurse who is haunted by her ring's rightful owner. So this is one that I sought out while working through the Fangoria Top 300 Horror Movies issue. I'll be honest, at the time, I knew who Karloff was, and I recognized the director's last name of Bava. I didn't appreciate this one the first time that I saw it, though. I've now given it a couple of rewatches, including here for this section of the podcast. So there's three stories, though. The first one is the telephone. The next one is the Vanderlock. And then the last one is called the drop of water. But I originally had issues with the placement of these stories. I didn't necessarily think that this was as good as people said. I can now say that being a more seasoned cinephile, I was wrong on both accounts. I do know that the American version, there is another one that moves these around. So I'm intrigued to see other, like the other take on this one to see how it will play as opposed to what I have seen. Now, I'm going to go ahead and break down each segment of this anthology. The first one of the telephone is an interesting little mini giallo. Rosie, who is portrayed by Mercier, doesn't know who is calling her, but that it's unnerving. I remembered one of the reveals, but not necessarily how this played out. I wasn't overly impressed previously. This time around, I think it's effective since all the elements introduced play in. I thought that Mercier and Alfonsi are both attractive. I like the tension that this builds and how it plays out. This is a well-structured short. The next one of the Vanderlock is the longest of all. We have the legend of Karloff, who is perfect in this role. What is great there is that because he's the patriarch, everyone listens to him. That sets him up for failure. I like that the makeup done here is people change. There's also a bleak ending that is effective. This one could be trimmed a bit, but that's just a nitpick. I also think how quickly Vladimir and Sedenka fall in love is forced. Now he is portrayed by Mark Damon and she is by Susie Anderson. They barely talk during the buildup, and that's establishing what this creature is. There is more story here than is needed more time for, or we should. I think we could have trimmed it down a bit and just let it play tighter, but there's also more story that has more time that could be fleshed out and make it better. I still think this is well made. And the last story is my favorite, of the drop of water. The setup is that we've seen this before. I love how this character of Helen, who is portrayed by Jacqueline Pierrier, doesn't believe and that is her downfall the max they use on this old dead woman still haunts me i also like how this dripping water is part of what torments helen there's a great conclusion here about how this curse could potentially keep carrying on we also get elements here that are forces that we shouldn't be messing with as well so in conclusion i need to give it more credit than i have in the past but i've appreciate it now having watched more older cinema and i've seen this one a few times this comes in around 90 minutes so that's good we get three solid shorts here and you can tell different types of stories as well which but they still flow together when you're working with the likes of Chekhov and d malpassant it makes sense it feels like this is laying the groundwork to bridge between like ec comics and things like tales from the crypt if you like movies from the era or working through baba's filmography this is a must see for me so my rating here for Black Sabbath is an 8 out of 10. And then up next for you, I'm going to be a little bit lighter on this one because I'm watching this in prep for the Summer Challenge series. So if this appears on there, I don't want to give away too much of my thoughts. But the movie is called Seconds. This is from 1966. This is directed by John Frankenheimer. It was written by Louis John Carlino and David Ellie. This is a sci-fi thriller on IMDb, but I also consider it to go into horror according to Letterboxd. This is from the United States, currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 4.1 on Letterboxd, with a synopsis being, an unhappily middle-aged banker agrees to a procedure that will fake his death and give him a completely new look and identity, one that comes with its own price. So this is one I found when looking for horror movies from 1966, in prep as I was saying. I do believe that this one popped up on the top horror movies film list on Letterboxd as well. So it was already on my short list of things to see. Other than that, I came into this one pretty blind. And what I'm just going to kind of say here is that this one seems kind of like a cautionary tale with some of the things that we get. 
I do feel like this might have been slightly a basis for Stephen King, who might have borrowed elements for like Quitters Inc. here, where we have this company that's overarching and has some more power than it should be. I think this one is also kind of looking at the whole idea that the grass isn't always greener and not to take for granted things that you do have and kind of just enjoy your life. I think we get some good acting here from Rock Hudson and John Randolph. We also get to see Murray Hamilton, who is the mayor from Jaws. He plays a character in this one. I think this is a well-made movie. That's one of the stronger points from it. I'm not sure if everyone who watched this would consider this to be horror, though. I think that with the atmosphere and what happens, it goes far enough. This is an excellent movie to stay in that vein. The acting is also strong from our leads, as well as the cast around them. Be advised, this is from 1966, so it was in black and white. If that's not an issue... This is a movie that I would recommend to both horror and non-horror fans alike, so I'm not going to give my rating or anything like that, but I would recommend giving this one a watch for sure. Then another one I got to also watch in prep is Spider Baby, or The Maddest Story Ever Told. This is from 1967, written and directed by Jack Hill. This stars Lon Chaney Jr., Carol Omart, and Quinn K. Redeker. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, a caretaker devotes himself to three demented siblings after their father's death. So this movie that I didn't know a lot about until getting into horror movie podcasts, it is one that pops up more than you would expect, and I also think it's in the top 300 Fangoria issue. What I knew was that this had an odd feel and was a cult classic. Something that piqued my interest was that this was one of the last films to feature Chaney, and that it also was having a young Sid Hag. So again, I'm also going to be a little bit light here. I will say that this one has some interesting things. There's some idea of inbreeding in this movie, and there's also this Mary family having a syndrome where their children regress the older that they get kind of like a Benjamin Button type situation but not necessarily physically but with their mental state it also kind of makes me think of that Russian family that due to inbreeding has a rare blood disorder that if they would just stop procreating it would die off with that line but I also I think it's still going like I said we have a young Sid Hag here. We also have the wife from House on Haunted Hill, like the original one. I think we have some good acting here. I know Lon Chaney Jr. doesn't look well in this movie, but I still think he's given it his all. He's always a consummate professional. We also get elements of things like the old dark house where the place that this family is living in is pretty decrepit, and then we have these distant cousins. I think there's a little bit of a plot hole how they're related and everything like that, but I think it does some good things there. I also like how these children... I mean, it's kind of a reverse order where the youngest one is the most responsible and then the oldest is getting closest to being almost feral. I just think this is one that I'm glad that I could tick off my list. Is it the best made? Not by any stretch. It shows its budget, but there is charm there. The acting is fine. I like seeing Chaney along with Beverly Washburn, Jill Banner, and Hag as this isolated family that are just surviving. The outsiders that come in and try to change things, and they kind of meet odd ends. This is some sleaze to it without going over the top. I don't know if I can recommend this to everybody. I would say that if you like this era, give this one a watch. This is just odd. And if you're also into cult cinema, this is also a must-see. Again, I'm not going to give my rating here, but I would recommend giving a watch to Spider Baby from 1967. And then up next for you here, I have... At Midnight, I'll Take Your Soul. This goes by the original title of A Mea Note Lavari Sua Alma. This is from 1964. This is directed by Jose Mojica Marins, who also co-wrote this with Magda May. Now, both of them star in this along with Nivaldo Lima. This is a horror film that is from Brazil. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, A grave digger prowls the city in search of a female to bear him a son. So this movie that I didn't know about existing until listening to horror movie podcasts. It went on a list after the 22 shots of moods and horror covered this trilogy. Now I picked up the box set during a sale and knew that I would check it out eventually. But this moved up as the sequel falls in a year that I'm covering over on the podcast Under the Stairs for the Summer Challenge series. So I figured I'd see this first one just in case there are elements I needed to know before that sequel. So what I'm going to actually start with here would be our main character. Now he goes by the name in the movie itself of Zido Kaixo. But we know him as Coffin Joe. He's portrayed by Marins. Now he terrifies people around the village. 
So that's one of the main things that I really kind of picked up on while watching this. And where I'm going to start, though, is it's interesting that we are following him as the villain. I'm shocked that we don't see redeeming qualities for him. Bringing back up something, he seems like Mr. Hyde without the Dr. Jekyll side. As I was doing this review, he also seems to be kind of like Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights. And it also is interesting that originally Marins wasn't going to play this role. The actor dropped out right before filming started, so he stepped in. It would be interesting to see this played by somebody else, especially since this is an iconic role. And, you know, Marin's just great here. So I will come back to the story, but I need to shift over to the filmmaking. The reason is that I didn't expect the effects to be as brutal as they were. The cinematography also helps as they cut away and can hide things. It doesn't have the biggest budget, but the practical things they did look great. It's also shocking that this came out in the 1960s. Movies were still a bit tame that I've seen, so this Brazilian film, what they did was impressive. I do need to say that there are in-camera effects that don't also look great, but there's some charm there, and I have a soft spot for it, so it works. I'll also credit the cinematography here as it helps to build this atmosphere. Then, to finish out the story elements, we don't have much in the way of a story, and it's quite basic. We have Coffin Joe, who is a bully. No one in town will stand up to him. They say things when he's not around, but no one will do anything about it. It isn't until he starts to kill those that stand in his way of him getting what he wants. His blasphemous nature also comes back to bite him. Now, as someone who is not religious, I like this angle. Things end up on the Day of the Dead, and Coffin Joe isn't bothered by the holiday, but that's not to say that spirits aren't. The lore that we get, I thought that was good that as they kind of introduce different things because I'm not fully versed. So it does seem like a variation on some of the things that I am familiar with though. Now how things end is fitting for everything leading up to it. I think the last thing I'm going to go into would be the rest of the cast. So Magda May, who is Tara Zena in this movie, she also helped write this with him and that's the girl that he's going after. Now, Nivaldo Lima is Antonio, who is, they're a couple in this, and the only thing standing in the way of them getting married is Coffin Joe, and I mean, they're also standing in the way of what he wants. I think they're both solid, though. I feel bad for Valerie Vasquez. She cannot help her situation, and who can say that it's her fault? And what I mean there is that she is unable to get pregnant, and I'm not even fully sure if it's her fault with some of the different things that I know, and this is a patriarchal way of looking at things, like with Henry VIII. She does well in her role as Lenita. Now, there's also Ildo Martin Simoes, who is solid as Dr. Rodolfo. Other than that, the rest of the cast was good as townspeople to round this out for what was needed. So, in conclusion, this is a solid film from Brazil. What is shocking is that I read this as the first one from the country. It is interesting that writer-director Marins also didn't take on this iconic role like he almost didn't. He carries his movie with how villainous he is. The rest of the cast around him are solid. There were effects that I didn't expect to go as far as they did. This is a well-made movie and one that is underseen, which is a shame. I would recommend this as giving this one a viewing for sure. Be advised that this is foreign and it's from 1960s. That means it's in black and white as well as subtitled. If you can get past that, this is worth a viewing. So my rating here for At Midnight I'll Take Your Soul is an 8 out of 10. And then to finish out my mini reviews here, I was going to say I could do a couple Twilight Zone episodes that I actually watched recently. And the first one is He's Alive. This one is directed by Stuart Rosenberg and was written by Rod Serling. And what was interesting here is that this stars Dennis Hopper, Ludwig Donath, and Paul Mazursky. So this one is a tiny neo-Nazi organization struggles pathetically to succeed in a big city. A mysterious figure begins to ruthlessly guide a young, insecure U.S. Nazi leader and the group begins to draw more attention. So this one, I'm not going to give away who the person is that is talking to this Dennis Hopper character, but this one really has some social relevance with things that have happened in the United States in recent memory. It's kind of funny with some of the things that are being said here are things that I've said to people. And what I mean there is this, I believe it's a Jewish man who has almost like a father figure to the Hopper character. And he lived through things with the Holocaust. So it's just kind of very fitting with things there. And it's almost kind of scary that what's happening in this movie is still relevant. And I know one of the last lines here is that the villainous character who is guiding Hopper, Rod Serling says at the end that this person will still live on as long as there is hatred like this. So definitely kind of an interesting one. One of my more favorite ones so far from season four where these episodes went much longer. And the other one was Mute. This one's also directed by Rosenberg. This one was written, though, between Richard Matheson and Serling. Stars Barbara Baxley, Frank Overton, and Irene Daly. 
So this one is the orphan daughter of a telepathic parents must learn to speak and deal with a world she cannot communicate in. This one almost seems like more of like a coming of age type story. I didn't like this one as well, but her parents were part of a secret pact and a group that they're trying to do some sort of experiment. Now, when they actually get to this little girl who survives when her parents die in a fire, she's unable to speak, but she can communicate telepathically. There's some weird things that happen in the school that she goes to, and this one's almost like how she's been guided for so long to be what people might be revealing to be a medium and her teacher is trying to break her of that i did like that aspect of it this one just goes on for too long and i think it could have been cut back to being a half hour episode and been just much more effective as there's a lot in this that feels like filler so i don't think there's anything else i need to go into here so let me get you over to the trailer of my first featured review Dolian Prince taught me this tailor. An ingenious device for the right occasion. You'll never lie to a friend again. And you'll never kiss another man's wife. For my first feature review is going to be Murders in the Zoo. This is from 1933, directed by A. Edward Sutherland. This was written between Philip Wiley and Seton I. Miller. And I should also say there's uncredited additional dialogue by Milton Herbert Gropper. This one stars Charles Ruggles, Lionel Atwill, and Gail Patrick, while also featuring Randolph Scott, John Lodge, Kathleen Burke, Harry Beresford, Nancy Crowley, Jane Darwell, Samuel S. Hines, Carmen Sita Johnson, Ethan Laidlow, Howard Leeds, Edward McWade, Burt Morehouse, Edward Pauley, Lee Phelps, Cyril Ring. Now, this is a crime horror film that is from the United States. I should also say here this is a universal film. This is sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being... A monomaniacal zoologist is pathologically jealous of his beautiful but unfaithful wife, Evelyn. He will not stop short of murder to keep her. So this movie that I discovered when searching Letterboxd for horror from 1933, what I didn't realize with that is a lesser talked about universal film. It is interesting that I bought a box set that had this and all four films in it actually feature Atwell. Now, he's an actor that I've grown to like the more that I see him in things, and I also didn't realize how many he did until recently as well. The title gave me an idea of what this would be about, at least to an extent. So before I jump into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes. I'll start with our director of Sutherland. He has directed 52 films. I've seen two. Both are for Universal. It isn't considered horror, at least his first one that I've seen, but I tossed it in with That is the Invisible Woman, the only other one that he did in genre. Then to the writers, I'll start with Wiley. He wrote 13, and I've seen three. Then... There also were three in genre for him with The Island of Lost Souls, The Invisible Man, and now this. I've seen all three of those. His co-writer of Miller wrote 55 works, and I've seen two. The first was the original version of Scarface. Now, in horror, he did two. This was the first, and he also did Knife for the Ladies from 1974. 
Now then, did the castle start with Ruggles? He was in 107 films. I've seen three. He was in Trouble in Paradise and then The Invisible Woman. So this is technically his only one in genre. Now over to Atwell. I'm sure that I've brought him up on here before, so I'll be brief. I've now seen 12 of his 79 films for 15%. All of what I've seen are in horror, so I'm at 12 of 21 there for 57%. Then lastly, I'll look at Patrick. She has 65 movies, and I've seen one. This was the only one that she ever did in horror as well. So what I'm going to go ahead and say here is I want to give credit here to the opening credits. We are seeing the actors being matched up with different animals, and I thought that was a good touch. The movie then shows us Eric Gorman, portrayed by Atwell, punishing Bob Taylor, portrayed by Polly. Eric caught Bob talking to his wife, and they might be having an affair, but that doesn't necessarily matter. Eric sews his mouth shut like he saw with a native tribe. Bob is then left in the jungle of Indochina, according to a map. Eric is there collecting animals for a zoo back in the United States. He is quite good at what he does. Eric's wife, Evelyn, who is portrayed by Kathleen Burke, is also there with him. She is concerned with what happened to Bob. Now, the group soon learns that this poor guy was most likely killed by a tiger. We then shift over to a sea vessel, bringing the animals to the United States. We get to see even more that there is no love between Eric and Evelyn. She talks to Roger Hewitt, portrayed by Lodge, but she warns him that if her husband sees, it won't be good for them. Eric then appears. There is an interesting back and forth as Eric wants to show off the animals he collected to Roger, despite how late it is. We are then back in America. The movie gives us some zoo footage, and we get to know the other characters involved. There is Peter Yates, portrayed by Ruggles, who is a former newspaper guy. He wants to take on being the publicist for these animals and for the zoo. He is accepted into that role to help bring in more money. Now, there is Dr. Jack Woodford, portrayed by Scott, who works at the zoo, caring for the animals. He is helped by Jerry Evans, portrayed by Patrick, and I take it as that they're an item. Now, the last character to introduce is a Professor G.A. Evans, portrayed by beersford i believe he runs the zoo along with eric it is decided to help fundraise by having a dinner this takes place in the cat's house peter is running things now the seating arrangement is interesting with eric sitting across from evelyn and roger who are sitting next to each other things take a turn when roger is bit by something the results seem to be from a snake as in a mamba i believe it's a green mamba eric blames jack and thinks that he's careless now, Jack goes about clearing his name, and Evelyn has her suspicions. The death won't stop there, though. That is where I'm going to leave my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that I love this concept. I'm a big fan of going to the zoo, and then when you're set in a movie like this, where we have animals being used as a weapon, is a good idea to me. We also have a solid cast of characters as well. If I do have a gripe about the overall idea, we learn too quickly the truth, which ruins the mystery. It's more of seeing the characters trying to prove who is doing it along with, you know, trying to prove their innocence. The low runtime hurts there for me as well. So let me get to the strongest part of this then would be the acting. Atwill is such a good villain here. When we first meet him, we see how savage he is. That just continues to grow with the different things that he does. Atwill just does so well there. I'd also say that Patrick, Scott, Lodge, and Burke are also good. They're entangled with things going on, not necessarily by choice. It is more for survival. Ruggles adds comedy here. I don't necessarily need it, but it was fine. And I'd say that the rest of the acting rounded this out for what was needed. So what I'm going to go next would be then fleshing out some additional things with the story. First, I don't blame Eric for wanting to get revenge on his cheating wife. We never see it explicitly, but I'm guessing that she is. I don't like that she's going behind her husband's back. I also don't think he should be killing because of it. Things that happen here make sense, since I believe that the Hayes Code would force the characters to be punished. Now, with that taken care of, I'll then again say that I love the settings. Going from the jungle to the zoo makes some good set pieces. Even though we don't necessarily see it, I love that the animals are used as weapons. Part of that is just a lack of way to do it practically, but this does have a bit of filler with some animal footage. I can overlook that though as it works. Credit then to the editing as well as the cinematography. It is fine without standing out, but the animal noises also help with the soundtrack. So then before I give my closing thoughts here, let me do a little bit of trivia as this is one of over 700 Paramount Productions filled between 29 and 49 that were sold to MCA Universal and 58 for television distribution, which is probably explaining why this is lesser talked about there. One of four films in which Randolph Scott and Gail Patrick both appear. Working title was Murder at the Zoo. This was released on Lionel Atwell's 48th birthday. 
So in conclusion here, this is a well-made movie. It does come with some slight issues for me, but this is more of the era than just the film. I love the concept. Setting this first in the jungle and then to the zoo is great. I think that Atwell makes a good villain with a solid cast around him. This is well-made. If I have issues, I just want a bit more of the mystery to be built than what we got. Doesn't ruin the movie, though. I think that this could have deepened it a bit more. This is still a lesser talked about Universal film that I'd recommend viewing if you like films from the era. So my rating here for Murders in the Zoo is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Now, I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really necessarily think I need to do that. So let me go ahead and get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. I can see the fear in your eyes. You saw something you can't explain. This way, rookie. Call's been rerouted to the new station, so it should be quiet. If there's an emergency, the station's number's on the desk. Shall be fine. Captain Lauren's daughter would be joining the department. Yes, sir. Just want to work where my father worked, even if it's for one night. He was a hero. Until he wasn't, you know. Lanford Police Department. You don't know what happened. But your father was no saint. Your daddy started something very important. Tonight we're going to finish it. The Temple Baron will bring forth the low god, and I will be redeemer. Infinite mouth. I can't do this anymore. Just get me out. We pray in the temple of the low god. And for my second featured review is going to be Malum. This is from 2023. This was directed by Anthony De Blasi, who also co-wrote this with Scott Pioli. This stars Jessica Sula, Natalie Victoria, and Clark Wolf, while also featuring Monroe Klein, Candace Coke, Kevin Wayne, Valerie Liu, Chaney Morrow, Sam Brooks, Morgan Lennon, David Fultz, Britt George, Angel Ray, or actually probably Angel Ray, Christopher Matthew Spencer, Daniel Cohn, Brooklyn Durs, Eric Olson, and Becca Medford. This is a drama horror thriller film that is from a co-production of Italy and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being... A rookie police officer willingly takes the last shift at a newly decommissioned police station in an attempt to uncover the mysterious connection between her father's death and a vicious cult. So this is a movie that popped up on my radar when I heard that this was a remake of co-writer-director Anthony de Blasi's earlier film of Last Shift. This is one that was on my list for a bit to see. I haven't watched that original one. But it, this is one that when it was shown at the Gateway Film Center, I made a point to check it out as it also had some buzzwords that got me excited. So before I jump into the movie itself, let me do some feature notes on some of the key people here. I'll start with our director of de Blasi. I've seen two of his nine movies that he's directed. The first was a Clive Barker adaptation of Dread, and now I've seen this one. Dread was also his feature film debut in genre. He has six total. I have not seen Casa Daga. The original take on the stories I was saying, uh, most likely to die or extremity. As a writer, he has three. All are in genre. I've seen this in Dread, but not Last Shift. Then to his co-writer of Pioli, he wrote five, four in horror. I've only seen this. He also did Last Shift, Casa Daga, and Exum. Then moving to the cast, I'll start with Sula. She's been in nine works. I've seen two. Both are in genre with this and Split. 
Then shifting over to Coke, she has 14 films. I've seen two of hers. The other one that I've seen is actually not in genre. It's La La Land. This is her only work in genre. The next is Morrow. He has 12 movies. I've seen three, all in genre. I've seen Haunt, Wrong Turn Remake, and now this. He has 10 total in horror with American Bigfoot, Terror Trips, Mothman, Time's Up, Mutilator 2, Last Checkout, and Watchdog that I have not seen. I also wanted to give credit to Wolf as I started listening to her on a podcast where they were playing like Dungeons and Dragons, but she's been in 10 things. I've seen two. The first was Satanic Panic and then this. She's done three shorts in genre with five movies. I have not seen December, Psycho, Storm Chaser, or Torn Hearts. So then for this movie here, we start off with seeing some police footage. Someone is filming a group of women that are playing in a creek. It turns out that they're attacked and taken by a cult. The leader is John Malum, portrayed by Morrow. With him is Clark Wolf, Morgan Lennon, and Little Lottie Throat, portrayed by Medford, among others. We see that they hurt these four young women. That is until it shifts over uh, to a Will Lauren, portrayed by Olsen. He was a police officer that led the raid to put an end to what this cult was doing. He, it was reported that the leader was killed at the scene. Whatever happened messed with Will's head. He gets praise from fellow officers like R. Price, portrayed by Brooks. Now something horrific happens here as Will goes off the deep end. It then jumps one year later. Will's daughter of Jessica is now a police officer. She's portrayed by Sula. It is her first day. She is elected to take the last shift at the police station that her father went crazy. Now before going in, she goes to her father's grave where she has a run-in with her mother of Diane, portrayed by Coke. What happened with Will has messed with her even more. She has turned to drinking. The night is also unnerving that the followers of Malum are making trouble at the new police station. Now Jessica arrives and taking over for another officer played by Britt George. There's a combination of him trying to tell her the ropes while also questioning why she would elect to work this shift. The truth of the matter is trying to piece together what happened with her father here. She wants to see if there's an explanation. It doesn't take long for spooky things to happen in this nearly abandoned police station to fully become a nightmare. It started with a large pig being left outside with the marking of the Church of the Lower God on its back. I believe that this is what this cult is calling themselves. Now from there she gets more visitors that might not be real and she has to fight to survive. So that's why I'm going to leave my recap introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is with the setup. I love that this set the tone showing us police footage which made things creepy. Then from there we get to meet our characters. I wasn't expecting what happened with Will so that also helped to settle in. What is interesting here is I saw another reviewer say that de Blasi was combining elements of John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness with Assault on Precinct 13. I think it's a good way to describe this in a nutshell. I think when I go first with delving deeper is with our character of Jessica. She loved her father. It bothers her that she hears others talking bad about him. I can't fault her there. To her, he was a good man. No one can take that away. What she is trying to do by taking her first shift in this police station before it closes down is to see if she can make sense of what happened. What I f like here is that this, as this mystery unfolds, there are different things that she finds out to get to the next clue. It feels a lot like you'd get in like a horror video game like Silent Hill or Resident Evil. You need to do something before other things get opened up. I did appreciate that. I also want to commend Sula for her portrayal as well. It feels real and there are emotions behind it. Being a woman police officer is another aspect that I factor in with how she is talked to by her peers. Next thing I want to go over to would be my favorite parts of this, which is the cult. They are like a Lovecraftian one to me. I'm not sure if this lower god is a demon or something older than that. There are things that we learn about with them and their leader that had me glued to learn more. Malum doesn't seem to age. That's creepy. His followers are Manson-like in Wolf, Lennon, and Medford. That adds creepy value there. They also s have seen through footage of what happened with the cult that was brought in. Not everyone is as they seem, which is where I'll go next. I did also want to give credit here to the actresses I named as well as Morrow. The rest of the crew are just good along with that acting to make things feel un like more unnerving. Now, I will say that this is a supernatural movie. What is interesting, though, is that Jessica is told not to go to the holding cell area. My thought was that the officer knows that it's haunted. When she reveals that she had to go in there, he says that she shouldn't have because there's black mold. That sets up that she could be hallucinating. I like that they introduce this, even though I don't believe that's the explanation. There's a slew of characters that come through, and we don't know if they're real or the entity is making her see them. That makes this nightmare, and it gets more leeway with some dream logic for me. 
So the last bit I want to go over to would be shifting away from the story as a setting. Having this in a nearly abandoned police station is terrifying. It makes doors difficult to get open due to locking mechanisms. It explains having a smaller cast as well since this place is being decommissioned. The lights aren't great, so it's darker than it should be due to being closed down. This also helps with the atmosphere, and I wanted to give credit. I should also pull in the cinematography is great along with the sound design. I was quite impressed there, to be honest. Now, I also have to go into would be with the effects. The blood that we got looked good. I would say the majority of this is practical, which I appreciate. I would bet that there is CGI. What they use it for is good. It is used in conjunction with practical effects, and that is where it should be used for. I'd say the framing of the shots help. This does rely on jump scares, and I'd say that they were used effectively, though. That is another plus. So there's not really any trivia on the IMDb page, so in conclusion, this movie is one that I rather enjoyed. I'm at a disadvantage of not seeing the more of that I'm seeing the more polished version first. It makes me want to go back and see The Last Shift now. This does things that I love. Having a terrifying setting in this abandoned police station is great. I like that there's a cult and that there could be demons actually here. There's even a Lovecraftian vibe as well. I thought that the acting is solid. I give more credit to Morrow as the cult leader and his crew. This just feels like a nightmare and we don't know where the seams of the world are. And I'd recommend this if the things I've said ticks boxes for you. So my rating here for Malum is going to be an 8 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section. I do think people should go out and check this movie out. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back and then just to close everything out here if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com if there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show just let me know in that email if you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes that's horrorreview.webnode.com if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And for the next episode, I don't have any lists that are ready to go at this time. I'm going to continue on with doing my Traverse Through the Threes as I'm going to be pairing up the Vampire Bat. That's going to be from 1933. And I'm going to have, I believe, Spoonful of Sugar. Makes for kind of an interesting little double feature here. So those will be the two featured reviews at this time. I'll also continue to watch more and prep for the Summer Challenge series as well and i also knock out another traverse of the threes of an older movie as well i have another one from 1963 i'm not necessarily sure which one yet but i will do that i don't think there's anything else i need to get to speed with here on this outro so what i will say is thank you so much for listening and whatever you do today i hope you're safe and doing it have a great time out there this is your tour guide of david garrett jr and i am signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what i needed now to give it the perfect ending 